The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there are some in the back uh, that are provided for you. We'd love for you to grab one of those copies and uh, turn to John 20. You'll find it on page 906 on those Bibles uh, in the back. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those and let it just be a gift uh, to you uh, from us this morning. John actually sums up his gospel there in chapter 20, kind of the reason, the purpose for writing. Look there at chapter 20, verse 30. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would open our eyes to the one who saved us. Lord, we pray now that everyone in this room, Lord, would have life in the name of Jesus. Lord, that as we go back and walk with Mary and Peter and John, that we too would see, Lord, with eyes of faith, the resurrected King. And Lord, in all that that means for us, that our life is made new and hidden with Him, forgiven of sins. And Lord, may that give us excitement and joy and an urgency to proclaim this good news as long as we have breath. We pray that You would bless us, Lord, as we read and study Your Word this morning, this Resurrection Sunday. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. John has spent, at this point, 21 chapters chronicling the life and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. He's given, particularly John has, like a theological backdrop for who Jesus was. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Word made flesh to dwell with us. Only God could do the things that John records Jesus doing. Healing the sick and turning water to wine and raising the dead. But only a man could walk in the shoes of Adam's race in order to be our substitute. Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And the last chapters of John focus on that reality with Jesus' unjust arrest, the trial before the high priest and, and Pilate, his scourging, that brutal crucifixion that we looked at Friday night, his death and burial. So that's the brief timeline that brings us to our text this morning in John 20. And I want you to think with me this morning Why has Christianity from this small band of followers spread 
emerged so rapidly with such power. No other band of messianic followers in that era would have concluded that their leader was raised from the dead. Why did this one? No group of Jews ever worshipped a human being as God. What would lead these Jewish believers to change their worldview virtually overnight? Jews didn't believe in divine men or individual resurrections. Friend, how do you account for the, the hundreds of eyewitnesses? Today we're going to be thinking about an eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. So many of these lived on for decades. They, they publicly maintained their testimony, eventually giving their lives for their belief. As Pascal put it, I believe those whose witness, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Because we know that doesn't prove that the resurrection is true, that someone would die for their faith, but it is a very interesting data point, isn't it? That so many would go to their death because of this reality that they were proclaiming. And why should you really care about this in the first place? What does it have to do with you and me? And I think the only explanation for those realities, the only way to make sense of the ongoing Christian movement, really the only reason to explain why you're here this morning at 7.30, the only way that you'll truly find hope in this life is bound up in the events of John 20. John wants us to see that Jesus Christ accomplished salvation for his people by dying for our sins and then rising bodily from the grave. I just want to mention two points this morning, two observations from the text. They're going to help us to see that not only did Jesus die as our substitute, bearing the wrath of God, but he rose proving that God was fully satisfied with his sacrifice. So we're just going to see two witnesses this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes, the witness of the empty tomb. The witness of the empty tomb. And then number two, the witness of the risen Christ himself. The empty tomb, the risen Christ. My prayer is that we would be strengthened this morning by John's eyewitness account of the resurrection, and that some in this room would see and believe today. Number one, the witness of the empty tomb. Beloved, don't underestimate the power of an eyewitness. God didn't inspire a video of Jesus rising from the dead. Ten years after the, the resurrection, Peter was preaching on this very thing in the book of Acts. And this is what he says in Acts 10. God raised Jesus on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So God desires to use witnesses to share his story. That's God's plan. And his witnesses are to witness. That's how God did it. And he seems to think that is enough for us. So let's walk through this eyewitness account together. It starts early in the morning with Mary Magdalene. So John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, 
and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now all the gospel accounts mention Mary Magdalene as being prominent among the women who who come to Jesus that morning. John says precious little about Mary in his gospel up to this point, but now her role comes into play big time. So so it's still dark as she comes, which, which is just describing reality, but perhaps it is also John's kind of subtle way of pointing to the, the darkness that still lies upon the disciples that's about to be lit up in, the, in their understanding as this new age dawns. John doesn't mention the stone being rolled away or rolled over the entrance of the tomb, but we know it was very large. We know it was sealed by the Romans and it was guarded through the night. And that stone was rolled away when she approached the tomb. And this causes her great trouble. So verse 2 So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. I just think it's good to observe here that Mary does not even entertain at this point the idea that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Perhaps you're you're sitting there and kind of thinking in your right mind, this is crazy. Who would actually believe and think that a man, after he died, would raise up again to new life? Well, only people from a long time ago, before they had all the the knowledge and the intellect that we have and the the research that we have. C.S. Lewis called that kind of thinking chronological snobbery. But notice notice here, even, even Mary in the first century looks for the logical explanation for why Jesus wouldn't be there. Of course, the grave has been robbed. So she's not abandoning all of her logic. Perhaps the Romans just came to mutilate the body of Jesus more, or the Jews to steal it to disprove his teachings. But she runs to get Peter and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John, the author of this gospel, and to hopefully come and help find the body and return it to the tomb. So at this point, Mary is not a believer in the resurrection. It's going to take a lot more than that to convince her. So continuing on there in verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. I do get a kick, a little bit of kick out of verse 4. Perhaps John just wants to show that he's actually faster than Peter. He can outrun him. I don't think there's a lot of symbolic meaning in these details. I do think this sounds like the notes from someone who was really there. So these details don't really add to the main point of the story, but they show that I think these things really happen. It's just the way that we tell stories. We often set our stories up with the details that, that were happening as we encountered the thing or as we did this other event. So John gets to the tomb first and he stoops in and looks inside. Perhaps it's beginning to get lighter outside, maybe like outside right now. And he's able to make out the linen wrappings used to wrap Jesus' body lying there. But John did not go in. Perhaps it was a little spooky walking into a tomb. He's checking it out first. Whereas that's not Peter's style. So we see what Peter does in verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, 
but folded up in a place by itself. Now this is typically Peter's style. John may be faster, Peter's bolder. Now what did he see when he walked in? Well, they don't see Jesus. So the tomb was empty. Just note that. But they wouldn't have expected to find Jesus' body if someone had robbed the grave. But would grave robbers leave the expensive linens filled with even more expensive spices lying like this? Have you ever had your car broken into or your house for that matter? I wonder if you've ever encountered thieves who swept up the broken glass from your window and neatly tidied up your car before they left with your valuables. Now things would be in shambles, wouldn't they? They'd be in a mess everywhere. Well, that's not the way it was in the tomb. And John tells us this for a reason. These details about the wrappings are not unimportant. The, 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 the language is a little ambiguous. It either means that the linens around the body and the face cloth were folded neatly, kind of rolled up, which would be extremely strange in and of itself. Or it means that they're laying in the exact place where the body was and simply collapsed as if the body just went through them. Either way, there's a major contrast in this gospel from the way another man was raised from the dead, namely Lazarus. If you remember, Lazarus was dead three or four days. The stone was removed. He was called forth by the name of Jesus. And we read this. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. That's the same word used here. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. John eleven forty four. So John and Peter saw that. They saw Lazarus, and now they see this. Jesus' body was not like Lazarus' body. It was very similar, but it was new. It was different. It would come and go, even through grave clothes. Even through walls in locked rooms, as we'll see later. Even to sit and eat fish for breakfast. At the resurrection... If you are in Christ this morning, you will have a body, Paul says, like this, like Jesus's. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. That means there's more coming like him. And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Friends, no one stole this body. Look down at John 20, verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. He believed. John believed. The majority of the others would need to see Jesus, or need to put their hands into his wounds, but not John, not here. Now, he hadn't fully understood everything, especially that Jesus had been pointing them to this From the scriptures, from that testimony, you see that there in verse 9? For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Jesus had been saying this to them already. You go back to John chapter 2. And this is what Jesus said. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. This is John writing, commenting. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture 
in the word that Jesus had spoken. And yet, the witness of the empty tomb, the grave clothes lying there was enough for John. From what about you this morning? What about you? What do you make of this account? Just note the pains that John takes to show us that this body was gone. You know, for evidence to be admissible in a Jewish court, it required two witnesses. And interestingly, we have two at least here, Peter and John. John didn't write this so that we would believe in a mere spiritual phenomenon that is meant to warm our hearts, even in a cold room like this. No, the resurrection warms our hearts because it's true. This could have all been squelched, stopped, if the Romans or the Jews could have produced the body of Jesus. But they could not. They did not. What a loud witness the empty tomb is to the risen Jesus. Brother or sister in, in Christ, just by your presence here this morning, you are witnessing to this miracle. Did you notice that verse 1 records this happening on the first day of the week? All the Gospels do this without fail. And ever since this fateful morning, believers have been gathering to worship on the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. We don't just celebrate the resurrection on Easter. Christian, we are a resurrection people. We, we gather weekly as a reminder that the tomb is empty. That Jesus faithfully followed through with his promise to save us. That he rose from the grave. And that we have new life in him. If you remember at our church at Redeemer, just what a great reminder this is of the priority of gathering regularly with the local church. Not forsaking the assembling together, even for a sunrise service but encouraging one another all the more as the day of his second coming approaches. If we're we're not committed to a local church, and yet we profess belief in a resurrected Savior, I hope you just see the disconnect there. This regular gathering together, our love for one another, living out lives that are explained only by God's saving grace, that proclaims that witnesses to this empty tomb, that Jesus is alive. We are a gospel people. And therefore, by definition, witnesses ourselves. So friend, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm really glad that you're here. Or if you're a Christian here this morning that's, that's praying for someone else that you know doesn't know Christ, let me just give you one reason of many that this should matter. One sentence from about 20 years after the resurrection. Paul is preaching in Athens. And just listen to what Paul says in Acts 17, verse 30. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So, Repent, judgment is coming, it's coming by a man. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Jesus' resurrection is like a promise, it's a sign for us 
that God will judge our sin, that he takes seriously our sin. And if you're honest with yourself this morning, you know that you haven't done everything right in your life. You've sinned against the one who made you in his image. You and I and everyone in this room has. It would just simply be unloving for for me not to tell you that, to hide that, that fact that not only are you and I a sinner, but judgment is right from God and it is coming against sin. The man that Paul speaks of is Jesus and he will be the judge. The proof of it, Paul says, is the empty tomb. So friend, hear Paul's words and repent. Turn away from your sin, your rebellion, your selfishness, your lust, your idolatry, and put your trust, your faith in Jesus who never sinned and yet paid the penalty for our sin on the cross and who satisfied God's wrath against us. And we know that it was satisfied because God raised him from the dead. If you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you more after the service or someone nearby you would as well. Look back at this chapter here in John 20 as we see the camera now turn away from these two witnesses, John and Peter, and to a very unlikely character who turns out to actually be the greatest witness of all. So let's look at number two, the witness of the risen Christ. The witness of the risen Christ. So somehow in their sprinting urgency, and all that took place with Peter and John, Mary is left behind. Seems that Peter and John had departed from the tomb before Mary arrived, and so she's still under the impression that this is a grave robbery. So pick it up there in verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped, she stooped rather to look into the tomb. So we know from Luke's account that, that Peter went away. He went away pondering the things that he had seen, probably still digesting everything. We know John returned home as well, probably to tell Jesus' mother of what had happened. You remember that she would have been staying with him. But Mary Magdalene is left by herself, crying. She loved Jesus. She had been delivered from demon possession, forgiven of her sins. She's described as the one who loved much because she was forgiven much. Her heart is breaking and she is weeping. But nothing could prepare her for what she would see when she looked into the tomb. Verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. We don't know if she immediately recognized these two figures as angels or if this is something that Jesus later explained to her. But nevertheless, there they are dressed in white Interestingly, sitting at the head and the feet where Jesus had been lying, perhaps kind of outlying those linens. And as Mary looks in and talks with these angels, 
God himself was there, standing right behind her. And she didn't know it was him. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So there she was in God's presence, not just as a friend, but now as a sister. With a new relationship to God because of Jesus and what he had done. And like many places in the Gospels and in John, Jesus' true identity is initially hidden. Just listen to Jesus' words to her. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. So right here, even as she's speaking to him, she still doesn't know it's him. She still doesn't believe. Resurrection is not on her radar. So friend, if you're someone who is a little, a little skeptical, or perhaps you love someone who is skeptical or not quite there or just slow to get everything about Christianity, just know that there is hope. It's never too late. Keep praying. Keep pointing to Jesus. He, he may be closer than you think. I love the tenderness and the care in his question to Mary. Why are you weeping? Just picture that, that scene. He's resurrected. The reality is death is defeated. He is victorious. He has purchased her salvation. And Mary is dejected and crying. That's just a helpful portrait to place in the furniture of your mind and your heart if you're a Christian. Listen to Jesus' question. Why are you crying? Why are you weeping? Christian, why are you despairing? Why are you giving up? Why are you depressed? Why are you seeking love in such destructive ways? Why are you thinking about suicide? Why are you living apart from me? From whatever you're going through, your hope is found here. Jesus is alive. That one sentence will put into perspective every trial and struggle you've ever gone through and ever will go through. It won't minimize it. It won't remove it. But it will put it into perspective. Put yourself here with Mary and hear Jesus' voice say, Why are you weeping? I have risen. Come to me. Come to me. He asks, Who are you seeking? She asks him, Where have you laid the body? Thinking that the gardener has moved it for some reason. And then we see what I think is just a beautiful fulfillment of John 10 when Jesus says, I know my sheep and they know me. My sheep hear my voice and I give eternal life to them and they will follow me. Jesus calls Mary by name. Chapter 20, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. So Mary looks and sees and hears Jesus. 
the resurrected, glorified Jesus. And her reaction, I think, is implied here, would be like yours and mine, just grabbing him, grabbing hold of him, as if to say, you're not going to get away from me again. This grave-robbing theory in her mind is now put to rest, and she won't let go of the risen Christ. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus isn't being rude here. He's letting her know that he's not leaving again just yet. So you don't have to put handcuffs on me and anchor me down. But he is going back to the Father. And she should go now and tell the others, the disciples. But he doesn't say disciples, does he? He says, go tell my brothers, brothers. I just hope you see the grace in that word. Jesus holds no hostility to the very ones who deserted him. To Peter, who denied him. To you and me who have sinned against him in countless ways. Not only does he not leave them, he calls for them. He elevates their status, not just as friends, but as family. How do we comprehend that their father is his father, our father? His God is their God, is our God. The death and resurrection of Jesus has made it so that those who trust in Jesus have the same standing before God, the Father, that Jesus has. Beloved, every time you close your eyes and begin your prayer with Father, you are enacting the most glorious picture of reconciliation the universe has ever seen. Through Jesus, we have adoption as sons and daughters into God's family. And friend, listen very carefully. There's nothing that you can do apart from disbelieving this truth that can disqualify you from this grace. When Jesus was on the cross in chapter 19, before he gave up his spirit, he didn't say it is possible or it might happen or it could be possible to work out for your good. He said it is finished, finished, completed, It has been paid for in full. And that statement is fully underlined and vindicated here as he rises from the grave, as God's stamp of approval. Friend, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the grave? Will you find forgiveness of your sins? Righteousness that you could never earn on your own. A newness of life, the the Holy Spirit living inside of you. I promise that he'll never leave you or forsake you. Come to Jesus, the resurrected king. Repent and believe on him. He is risen. Mary is not despairing any longer. No more tears. She's the first witness to the risen king. And of course, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in Jewish court in these days. So if you're making all of this up, it would probably be better for one of the Jewish teachers to find Jesus first, or one of the male disciples. But it's here, it happens like this, plain as day, and the only logical reason for that 
would be that it actually happened this way. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we get this, how can we not give our lives to following Mary's example here in verse 18? Look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Beloved, can you just imagine the picture of joy, the excitement in her heart as she tells others, announces that Jesus is alive? What a privilege to be a messenger of the resurrection. We share this privilege. Friends, don't overcomplicate your evangelism. You're announcing an event. Jesus has risen from the grave. Much of the preaching in the book of Acts is simply that, pointing to the empty tomb, that Jesus died and rose again. But you're not unqualified to share that message. If you believe it, you can share it. To be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus is such an incredible honor and privilege. I think about when my kids were younger and there would be something that they were excited about telling me and I wasn't there. They would often race way at the front door to tell me and whoever told me first, the other one would start crying because they wanted to be the one to tell me. Brothers and sisters, when were we, the last time we were that excited to share a message of good news of eternal impact? That we were that eager to tell someone else, had that much joy to tell someone else about Jesus. Look at the joy that Mary has. You see that pattern as well in the book of Acts. Joy marking the disciples, even as they suffer. And sharing the good news with those who are lost. Mary had seen the risen Jesus and her life is forever changed. Jesus has given us Reliable, trustworthy witnesses to this truth. And we are blessed when we believe them. John 20, verse 29, Jesus would say to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friend, pray for our church that we would be faithful announcers of the gospel. Jesus was talking about us. Listen to Leo Tolstoy as we close this morning. He said this, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was... What will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, he said, Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? And you have to say no to that question. Unless you believe this narrative here in John 20 is true. If it's not true, if Jesus' body was not raised, if it's all a hoax, then our lives are merely finite. 
All the evil in this world will prevail. Wrongs will be left wrong. Death will be the end. Paul reflected on this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But brothers and sisters, like Paul, we preach a good news message because of reliable eyewitness accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul continued to write there in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Friend, Jesus is alive. That is the good news. He is alive. And he is coming again. What is different in your life today Because that's true. The tomb is empty. And brothers and sisters, there's news to tell. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we worship you this morning as our risen King. We love you. Thank you for first loving us. Lord, thank you for the kindness of giving us such clear evidence of your love for us. Often we are overcome by our circumstances and life and self-pity. Lord, your grace overwhelms us that you would pursue us, that you would come in the flesh to take the penalty of our sin and to rise from the grave and offer us newness of life. Lord, we pray for our church that we would be a faithful witness to the gospel. Lord, if there's a coldness in our hearts as it relates to those that don't know you, Lord, would you warm it? Break our hearts for those that are lost and blind. Open our eyes to see your grace. Lord, we pray if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, That today would be the day when their eyes are open to Christ. They may not have all the answers, but they know that they need you. And Lord, I pray they would come to you even now, even in a a prayer right, right there where they're seated.
to put their trust in you, to turn from their sin. Lord, we love you and we worship you this morning. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.